1: My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jay Summers at Jay Christopher Winery. It's August 30th, 2017. And Jay, we're going to start by asking you a nice, easy question, which is why wine?
0: (laughs) Why why not? Um, Ah, geez. That's that's a tough question. Um, Well, I I became enamored with wine, actually, when I was about 14, which is kind of an early age, I suppose. But um, my mother... And my then, um, the, the man she was married to, this great guy, Daryl Daniels, was a fantastic person, really, really cool guy. We're going down to Napa Valley and coming back with all of these small bottles of wine, which were like 750s, you know. And at, to that point in my life, I'd seen wine really only in giant bottles and boxes. So it was very... <laughs> very interested in it. And it was, you know, all the different labels and the different kinds. It was very fascinating to me. So I, I took immediate interest there and really tried the, the first great wines, which were Napa wines back then, you know, which is a very different place than it is now. Not that they don't make great wine in Napa Valley. Um, and that's not where I'm going with that. But it was a, more of a small, it was not too dissimilar to where we're at right now in the industry. So fascinating place.
1: So you kind of got introduced to wine at an early yeah. age, but then you first got into beer. So tell us kind of yeah. about how that happened.
0: Well, it was, it was a fermentation thing. You know, the, the wine thing happened more, you know, as I got a little bit older, I figured out that girls liked wine, you know, and so that was, through college, that was, that was good. So I got to know wine, and, and then um, I started making beer in college, you know, for obvious reasons. I was fairly popular with my roommates and ended up um, getting a job with the McMiniman Company in Eugene. And um, started hanging out around the brewery, and you know, kind of one thing led to another. Ended up as the brewer at the Hillsdale, and then the Fulton, and then the Edgefield up here. And during my time um, there, I became very interested in wine, you know, making wine. And uh, more or less, what happened was uh, I, I went to a burgundy tasting, and it completely blew my mind. Um, and then did this thing with Matt Kramer over three weeks when he had written his book, Making Sense of Burgundy. And beer became very unexciting from a production point of view at that point. And more or less because I I had discovered that we were growing the grape of Burgundy 30 minutes from where I was living. Um, That was amazing. And so that's really how I kind of got into this, you know. And it was nice to be in beer for a long time because... You know, unlike winemaking, where you have one chance a year at, at, at doing it, in, in brewing, you're brewing constantly. And so you gain a huge amount of experience very, very quickly with fermentation. You learn a lot about the mechanics of moving liquids. And, you know, that's really what winemaking is at a certain point, at least the, the physical aspect of it. So it gained a lot of experience. And it was a really good training for getting into the wine industry. And um, after burgundy epiphany um i ended up working a harvest at adelsheim in 92 and then it was kind of slippery slope decided not to go to law school and kind of went from there you know
1: what was it about burgundy that was so captivating
0: uh, i can not tell you <laughs> the, the exact wine um it was a, to that point i was drinking a lot of california napa valley which you know great wines but they were very obvious wines, you know. It was this very, you know, big fruit. The oak was prevalent. They're just big wines, you know, and they're very easy to understand with a novice palate. You know, not to say anything negative about them. They were really great wines, and they still are. But they're much, they're much simpler expression of of, of wine, you know, and. You know, in school, I was studying philosophy, and so I was really into the you know phenomenology and existentialists and jazz and all this kind of esoteric. I love bar talk, you know, on the classical side. Um, I like complex things. And during this Kramer thing, you know, when we was tasting all these wines, there was the eighty five Volnay champagne from Dangeville, this wine. And I remember, Vividly, it was poured in my glass amongst a bunch of other wines and it was nearly orange in color It was so light, you know, and I, I remember my analytical brain was like, oh, that's gonna suck <laughs> You know, this wine's gonna be terrible. It's gonna be light. I'm gonna be like, mm, okay, whatever And it was anything but and it was to that point It was the most complex incredible thing I'd ever tasted and it over, you know in literally in 30 seconds my whole life changed and I just, I really enjoyed the complexity. And, and I, you know, like I said, it's it's not too dissimilar from listening to Miles play or Coltrane, or there's all this these layers of complexity. You know, when you listen to Miles play a solo, it's not obvious, you know, it's not like a pop song. You know, there's something, and it's it's not for everybody, you know, but for my kind of screwed up brain, <laughs> it was perfect, you know. And it's it's what I like. So. So as you kind of
1: started getting into the wine industry, what were the sort of similarities and differences between beer and wine industries?
0: Oh, they're completely different, which is which is what I. So, brewing is like baking, you know, and you know you think about the consumer base brewing, and this might change have changed a little bit since the, I guess they call it craft brewing now. When I was when I. Was doing it we just called it beer back then you know because that's I when if someone said craft brewing the first time I was I was a little mystified by what they were talking about I'm like oh that's what I used to do 20 years ago craft beer but it might be different with the craft brewing today when people might, might embrace batch to batch differences but when I was making beer and, and you look at the you know the classic beers that that you know like Newcastle Brown Ale If you buy Newcastle or Guinness, you you kind of want it to be more or less the same every time. You want consistency, you know? And that's really the goal of a great brewer, I think, is to be able to come up with your recipe that is, you know, maybe represents the area where you're getting your hops and your grain and your water and your yeast and all that, but you have this consistent product. But the biggest difference with wine is that we embrace vintage. every year is very, very different. I mean, you might have similarities from vintage to vintage, but, you know, especially in the Willamette Valley, we have giant vintage differences. And the other thing, you know, brewing, it's like a two-week to four-week cycle, and you're just doing the same thing over and over. In winemaking, you have seasons where you're doing different things, so you're always doing something different and I really really like this sort of a thing you know it's not boring you know right now we're racking the 16s back to barrel you know and then we get done to this we harvest the 17s and then we blend the 16s and then you know it's always there's a new project every month there's a new focus so that is that is the big difference and why I really gravitated away from brewing to winemaking so So
1: once you made that decision, how did you go about learning the trade and kind of take us through a timeline to beginning your own label?
0: Yeah, well, I I worked. I was fortunate to work with really great people. Um, Don Kautzner is um, the first winemaker, you know, beyond Dave Adelsheim. Um, When Dave kind of got too big to do it all himself, Dave went on the road and actually has done amazing work for the industry is kind of like I, I once called him the self appointed ambassador to the wine industry and someone thought I was insulting him. I'm like, no, no, that is not an insult. It's like he's an amazing guy. Cause he just took it on himself to go out and, and do all this great work for the industry. And, you know, most of us would not be sitting here in this capacity without his work. So, you know, he, he started doing that many, many years ago. And he has this guy, this crazy guy, Don Kautzner, who sadly passed several years ago. Um, was a really great intuitive winemaker. Worked with him and learned a lot about, you know, just kind of how you approach it from that angle. And then I was incredibly fortunate to get the uh, the assistant winemaker job at Cameron Winery, although John Paul never liked titles, so he gave me the title lead guitarist at Cameron Winery, as though we had a band, which we didn't. Um, so that was amazing because, and this was in, uh, so Adelsheim, was 92 93 and then Cameron was um, 94 through 99 and the best thing about that is because it was a small winery a big part of what I did was do the vineyard and that was incredibly valuable because there is a great division of responsibility in new world winemaking that you don't see as much in old world winemaking you have winery people and you have vineyard people Mm -hmm. and very rarely do does one person do everything and it really changed my perspective on on how i approach you know making the wine (coughs) and actually i changed my title many years ago to wine grower you know because it's really more of what we do you know we grow wine we don't really make it you know so that that's kind of cool and then uh while at cameron uh, john paul um owner winemaker cameron winery um great friend uh mentor everything um, all around crazy guy uh, allowed me to make five barrels of wine in 1996, where I started J. Christopher, and um, kind of slippery slope 120 cases to 10,000 cases, um, and that was a great experience making it there for a few years, you know. And then in ninety nine I moved over to help um, another person who had just bought some vineyard in Dundee, Bill Holler, and over in West Lynn, we put together this funky little winery in a horse barn and I made his wines and then made my wines there for a number of years, nearly 10 years actually, I did that there. And then in 2009, a very good friend, Ernie Lozen of Dr. Lozen fame, uh, German Mosel Riesling producer, probably the most famous uh, Riesling producer in the world, um, and I became partners in J. Christopher and as I always kind of joke, he gave me $10 million, and I spent all of it, <laughs> as you're looking at part of it. This, I certainly didn't do this on my own. I, I had investment, so. And that was 2009, and we started building and planting here at the, the facility here on Chehala Mountain.
1: So. so you, as you're trying to make your own wine, you talked about the, the, the wine you fell in love with being kind of old world Burgundy, which is not yes. necessarily what was being made here. So how did you go about sort of replicating that in your own wine?
0: Well, I wouldn't say it wasn't, well, I mean, obviously we can't make Burgundy here because we're not in Burgundy, Um, but I I would argue that there were a lot of wines being made in the day that did have that kind of style, you know, Cameron, you know, a lot of the early Adelsheim wines, there were some wines in there that were similar, Um, there were similarities already, I think, which is why I decided to make the Kierkegaardian leap, you know, to to try to do this thing and um but but really it's it's more of a it's more of an inspiration because obviously I'm not making Burgundy here you know I'm, I'm not making Volnay Champagne because I don't have Champagne you know <laughs> I have Appassionata, I have Abbey Ridge, I have all these other great vineyards but it's it's almost like if you're a musician um you, you listen like if you're a jazz musician let's say and you're you're going to play bebop or cool jazz or whatever. You're going to listen to Miles and Coltrane and, and try to understand how they're going after chord changes or how they might get certain tonality out of their instrument. And that's, that's how I see burgundy, which is why we pretty much only drink burgundy at home. Yeah, I drink almost no Willamette wine. Only when my friends open it, their, their wines, and then we try it. But for me, it's like, it's the platonic form of Pinot Noir. You know, I, I don't think anyone would argue with that. We're never going to make Burgundy here, but if if you have that here, always, when I'm in there blending, and I'm always thinking about that, and we're using the techniques more that they would in Burgundy, you know, native yeasts, um, natural, spontaneous, malactic, 20-month barrel aging, um, not, you know, punishing the wine with too much new oak, you know, those things. Um, that's, that's how I approach this, you know. It's, and we, we do the best we can with our terroir, you know. So.
1: so speaking of the kind of Oregon-Burgundy relationship, I'm curious... Clear early on, it was clear that Oregon was trying to sort of, that, that was, that was the, the goal, obviously, was to make Burgundy as close as you could. Do you think that's still the goal? Do you think Oregon has, is still chasing that? Uh,
0: that, <coughs> that is a very tough question. There's definitely um, many of us here still doing that. But, the, I mean, the valley is, is changing. And I, uh, just to be clear, I never use the word Oregon in terms of, even though I'm a native Oregonian, I'm a militant Oregonian. You know, I will defend the border. You know, I'll be down there with a semi-automatic weapon. You know, bet. I bet we make. I make Willamette Valley wine. You know, that's it's a, a very clear distinction of what we do. But there are a lot of people coming to the valley now, um, for better or for worse, depends on how you look at it. That they're just here to make wine, and and I'm not positive they have this same sort of. Um, point of view that I do. You know, you, you have the whole Jackson family thing here, which, um, you know, when, when they first came, I, I was really nervous about it. But they've actually had a pretty light footprint since they've been here. I think one of the reasons is Eugenia Keegan is, is, is very much involved. And she is like a super good person. And, and I'm, so I'm very comfortable with them here. But, you know, I, I, would, I, I have no idea what their goal is here. I don't know if they're thinking about Burgundy down there. I mean, possibly they are. I don't know. But there is a lot of investment. But on the other side, we have, I mean, Jacques Lardier is here from Jadot. I mean, he's definitely thinking about Burgundy since he's made Burgundy his entire life. So it's just my point is the industry is changing so fast. And there's so much investment from so many places that I really don't know if there is a focus here like there maybe was 20 years ago. So.
1: so you mentioned earlier uh, getting to know Dr. Dr. Lozen, is that mm-hmm. the pronounce right? Yeah. So you um before you before he invested with you, kinda mm-hmm. take me through how you met him and built a relationship. Oh yeah.
0: So um <laughs> it's a good story actually. Um I think it was two thousand one uh he came <coughs> and um Ernie um er his name's Ernst Lohzen, but we all call him Ernie. He always he goes by Ernie. One of the most Great guys in, in the world, legendary worldwide. I mean, he's, he's a very, he's a force of nature. He's a great guy. Um, anyway, so I was um, his business manager here for his import company, Lozen Brothers USA. Kirk Willey, another really good friend of mine, um, used to be a journalist for this thing called the Riesling Report. It's an online magazine with Peter Lehm, um, who is now. Writing he does he's written some of his I think he has a a book out on Sherry really great guy and great writer as well Um, And so I got to know Kirk through some Riesling I was producing for Hollerin actually back in the day and um, He liked what I was doing. So we had a party (coughs) and um, At his house and I remember he invited Ernie to it And so I was coming and I was totally nervous to meet Ernie, you know because like meeting Eric Clapton or something and so I go to the party, and I see him across the room, I'm like, oh crap, there's Ernie, you know. It's like, <laughs> I'll get the nerve to go up and talk to him at some point. And before that happened, I see him march across the room, straight up to me, and he goes, so, you're the Pinot Noir producer. And I literally, like, do this. I've, like, around, like, like, is David Lett behind me, you know? <laughs> it's like, he couldn't be talking to me, you know? And he was, and <clears throat> as it turned out, he had been, um, He'd tried several of my early wines that I made, like 98, 99, and really liked what I was doing. And so we ended up um, hanging out all night. I think we drank Burgundy till like three in the morning that night, and it was it was a great night. So every time Ernie would come back, we would we would see him and hang out. And and then fast forward to 2004, we. Um, I was finishing, <coughs> I was done with harvest here actually, everything was in barrel. Um, it was kind of a normal year, if, if that, that actually doesn't exist any longer, there are normal year, no normal years any longer. Um, but back then it was, we were done, everything was in barrel, whites were at a good place in fermentation, and so I was doing my typical go through the pile of, you know, mail that's this tall that comes in through harvest, and I get a phone call and Kirk's in, in Germany and he's like, hey, harvest is going very late here all of the interns had to go home, their visas were up. And so they had no help in the winery. And he was like, hey, can you send a guy over? I'm like, well, I'll think about it. And I told my wife, Rhonda, and Rhonda's like, you should probably go, quote unquote, could be good for Jay Christopher. And I'm like, okay, I'll go over, which was kind of exciting to me, you know? So I went over and all I had to do was load the press, which, you know, if you run a winery, you know how Light of it—that's just like super easy. It's just like you're just putting grapes in the press, close it, turn it on, watch the juice. <laughs> you don't have to keep track of everything else going on in a ten-thousand-case winery, you know. So it was a good experience. And then in the evening, I'd go back to the house, and um, Ernie and I would would drink wine and talk about possibly making wine in the Willamette, and then. Uh, About two years later, we started to um, decide that we were gonna do this small thing together, like a a joint venture. It was like 100 cases of a high-end wine called a Passionata. And so we started doing that, and that kind of led into um, thinking about buying some property. And the original idea was to do a completely new winery, but vineyard sourcing back then was really difficult. There wasn't very much available. And so we just kind of decided at one point that we would roll in my production into the new thing and just have it be Jay Christopher and have him come in. And so we finally got through accountants and lawyers by 2009, end of 2009, and built this room in 2010 and did Harvest here. And so it started planting in 2010, and that's kind of where the partnership started. And now we're roughly uh, 10,000 cases facility, uh, 21 acres planted here, and we're not growing, if I can help it. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you choose this site? Uh, It's funny because it's it's just down the road from the original Adelsheim winery, and I used to drive past (coughs) this site every day on my way home, and it was such a beautiful site, you know, it was, there's a lot of trees, and you know, if you see the vineyard, we actually left a lot of trees and planted around it, it's quite beautiful the way we went after it. Um, it's centrally located which is really nice so I'm very close to vineyards in Dundee, Eola um, and obviously Chehalem because that's where we're at and it's close to my house in Portland relatively which is important so I can get home but I just thought it, w- it was a nice site and it had all of the things we were looking for and, and Ernie had always talked about he wanted this concept of a, a wine estate which is a, a more of a European ideal you know and You know, a a south slope with a pole barn on it is not a wine estate, you know. And this is kind of what he envisioned. The only thing, honestly, I really cared about is what's behind us right now are the caves. Um, This, you can't replicate this. You have to have a cave to do great work. I honestly believe Um, the humidity in here is off the charts. We have very little evaporation. <clears throat> if anything, I believe our alcohol's actually move down during barrel aging instead of up like people's do and when they have a you know heating and cooling in a pole barn. Um, this, this was important to me and to Ernie as well. And then Ernie, I let him do the outside of the winery and put all the stone and <laughs> fancy doors <laughs> up, so, yeah.
1: So you mentioned we're in the Shehalem region here. Mm-hmm. So what is unique about the Shehalem region and the, and the
0: terroir here? <clears throat> well, is um, kind of a hot mess, actually. <laughs> and they are, um, they're, we're taking steps to, to make the AVA more um, focused, I would say. Um, for me, an AVA should have a singular soil type, or more, more, mostly a singular soil type. Ribbon Ridge is a great example, Dundee Hills is a great example, Eola Amity mostly. Yamhill-Carlton, all those AVA's are very, you know, Yamhill-Carlton and, and Ribbon Ridge are mostly 99% marine sediment, um, maybe 95%. Um, Dundee is mostly, you know, volcanic as long as you're at a- elevation, as same as Yule um, amity um, And in Shehalem, it's a very large area, and so we have everything, you know. Um, The backside is hopefully going to be turned into the Laurelwood AVA and that'll really help us define what we are so people know Laurelwood's Laurelwood, um, Parrot Mountains, Parrot Mountain. Um, We are the South Slope um, which we don't have a name for yet, but it would be nice if that was broken off at least in its own sub-region. And what I really liked when I came here was our, our soils here are very, very rocky, super rocky volcanic soils with um, a, shallow, a shallow layer in places um, with marine sediment underneath. And so I have 11 soil types on 21 acres, which from a viticultural and winemaking perspective is fascinating, so it's a really cool site. And I, I, I picked it, it's beautiful, it's in a nice location, but the soils are, are, are fantastic for what we do, you know.
1: So speaking of that, what is your winemaking philosophy, or wine growing philosophy? Thank you.
0: You learn really quick. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, you know, it's 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 fairly hands off. Um, my my new joke in wine industry is I don't want to use the N word, you know, which is natural wine. <laughs> the whole room usually gets really nervous when I say that. You know. but, um the natural wine thing is is incredibly unfortunate because there's such a controversy over what what does that mean you know um and it's kind of offensive to people like myself that more or less make natural wine we don't add yeast we don't you know we we do add you know potassium metabisulfite which by the way is the single greatest understanding and invention in modern winemaking you know it, it prevents oxidation, and it prevents spoilage, which is, you know, there's a reason why they put pine in the wine, you know, Retsina years ago, because it smelled and tasted so terrible that they put all this crap in there, you know, because the natural wine they're making was, was really terrible, you know. Um, not being, you know, I'm not, not to say that there aren't some wines that are made with these techniques that aren't, you know, nicely done, but it's such a... <laughs> I don't know why I'm off on the natural wine contention, but I just got into it with someone the other day about it, so it's fresh on my mind. But <laughs> I, I, My winemaking philosophy is really like Burgundy circa 1955, probably. You know, it's pretty hands-off. We don't use enzymes. We don't use weird liquids. We don't... I get a book of stuff from the wine supply companies. It's like this thick every year. And I honestly don't know what 95% of it does. I don't have a degree in enology. You know, I'm not a trained winemaker from a university perspective. I trained with people that are really good. And I drank a lot of great wine, so I know what great wine tastes like. So my philosophy is, is really to be as, as gentle with the wine as possible. Um, if it's not expressing the vineyard, you've done something wrong you know, and and if you start screwing around with tannins and enzymes and gelatins and all this weird stuff, you know, I, I feel like you're starting to miss the point. Those techniques are for huge production wines where you're trying to make, you know, a million cases of two buck chuck or, or whatever, you know. Uh, when we do wine here we're trying to express very small places. And so really you know, to, to, to bring it down to just one thing is, is that our goal is to express <laughs> express a sense of place. So if I have Abbey Ridge on the bottle, you know, right here, the Abbey Ridge, it should taste like Abbey Ridge and only Abbey Ridge, you know. That's my philosophy. So we've talked about music a bit already
1: today. I know mm-hmm. you're a big musician as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious if music has influenced your winemaking style at all.
0: Um, I listen to a lot of music. <laughs> <laughs> it's the greatest thing about the new winery, you know, the tasting room we're building upstairs is we put a separate um we have this new space age uh music system called Sonos. You know, I'm I'm fifty one, so that's, you know, it's like it's from the future for me, you know. It's like and I can I can off of my phone I can play different music down here than we play in the tasting room. So we're always playing Coltrane or Miles or even Jimi Hendrix or something really cool. But, but the one thing that the parallel I see between music and winemaking is, is it's about balance. You know, if you're mixing a record, you know, you don't want your bass too high and your, you know, the highs too shrill. You want it all very balanced and, and a nice, you know, wave form. And the most important thing about myself being a musician is it's, it's what I do to kind of keep calm I play every single morning and then I keep a guitar here. So actually, I play a lot when I'm blending in this room, which sounds fantastic in this room. It's, it's like, it's an amazing room. So I play in between tasting, cause you can't just sit there and taste all day. Otherwise you'll just get hammered, you know, that's really not, not why we do this, you know? So, but yeah. And you find time for music on the side as well. Oh yeah. We have a group called Reduction that we, all of us are wine people and, and some, we used to be called Vin Halen, but we realized we didn't know any Van Halen tunes, <laughs> so I'm not great at tapping, so you know, although I love Eddie Van Halen, the guy's, a, guy's an amazing player. So
1: So we talked a little earlier about sort of some of the changes you've seen in the industry in Oregon. I'm curious, uh, other than purely size, what are some of the other changes you've noticed in the, in
0: the so, 20 or so years you've been in the industry? Well, I mean, it's changed dramatic. I mean, it was funny. I was like one of the original small, little offshoot producers making my wine in someone else's facility, and that segment of it has grown hugely. I mean, everyone, their dog has a label now. You know, it's actually it's, it's pretty amazing. And you know, I don't, I don't want to criticize it or anything because that's how I started. But there's a lot of people um, in that group that I feel like are potentially don't have a great understanding of why we're all here. You know. And and I wish they could go have dinner with David Attelsheim, you know, so he could kind of maybe discuss to them about, you know, why Pinot Noir is so important and what it was like when we started and, and why this region is has anybody paying attention to it, you know, and some people are, are making wines, you know, and uh, it's and it's fine and, you know, power to them if they're successful. But, you know, I, I hear some people like, oh, we should pull up Pinot Noir and <laughs> plant Tanat. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? You know, it's like, well, you could do that and, you know, you might be able to sell a hundred cases, but are we going to be a, of an industry, you know? of and, and I think this is something that's, it's, I see two different sides of the industry. And then I feel like I'm in the middle, you know, you have all these little producers doing their thing. And a lot of them are doing really cool, interesting things, but maybe kind of lost sight of why they're here. And then you have the giant wineries just, you know, trying to go after the price point, you know, God, if we can get under 19.99, then, you know, we'll dominate and, and it's like, there's a, still a core group of us in the middle, just trying to do what we do which is make Pinot Noir, you know? We're a Pinot Noir growing region. And I think it's important. We're a high-end, high high-quality Pinot Noir growing region. That's what we do. And when we lose sight of that, we're in trouble in a big way. And that's the change I see. And it hasn't really changed, but I, that, that's the dynamic I'm seeing right now. And, and it's it's just interesting to watch, not that I can do anything about it. I mean, you don't see me sitting on any in industry panels and I'd have to give up guitar playing in the morning, you know. I'd have to go to a <laughs> a wine-growing meeting or something like that, you know. So <clears throat> what do you think is in
1: the future then for the Oregon wine industry the next 10, 15, 20 years? Um...
0: Well, we'll see what the climate throws at us, honestly, you know. Uh, this is like the, the fourth year in a row of wickedly hot temperatures. You know, the one thing that's good about this year is that we, at least we started bud break a little bit later. So it's, we're putting this ripening into later in September as opposed to August 30th last year. Um, But uh, stylistically, it's very difficult to achieve the kind of wines that I wanted to make when I started, you know, because if you pick early on sugar um, to have low alcohol, then you have very tense wine, wine with a lot of tension. And that's not necessarily what I want. And if you pick late, your wines are more open and, and more maybe more fluid. But then you're looking at fourteen and a half to fifteen and a half percent alcohol, and that is also not good. And so it's this weird thing. And if it does continue to get warmer and warmer, drier and drier, um, you know that 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 could be problematic. I mean, I, you know, there's. Parts of California have, have done quite well making high alcohol Pinot Noir, and, you know, and there's a certain point where maybe we might have to go down that road like those guys did, and, and they make delicious wines down there. You know, They're just stylistically different than what many of us have come here to do. And so I, I, definitely our biggest challenge is, is climate change, which apparently doesn't exist. It's not real. I would like to see Donald Trump farm, and then we can have a conversation in a couple years. So you can put that on tape.
1: Excellent. Um, You mentioned earlier that you were hoping to not grow any more than about 10,000 cases. What is
0: in the future for Jay Christopher? Um, Well, the tasting room is is going to open up a lot of opportunity for us, I think, um, (laughs) to focus more on small lot production that we can sell direct to consumers, which is really where where the market's going for smaller wineries. Um, The national wine industry, the national market is changing hugely, you know, you've got things like, you know, um, you know, Whole Foods just got bought out by Amazon, which could be interesting, and and if you've, you know, if you have a great placement at Whole Foods, (laughs) that could be very lucrative for you, you know, but it's it's you have to be lucky to be in that spot and you know and and it's it's conceivable that a winery like ours could never supply enough wine for that to happen um so it's 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 a very interesting interesting world that we're moving into so for us we really need to focus on the tasting room and having you know our customers come here and and shipping the wines directly to people and you know national distributions largely the companies are getting larger and larger the the number of small distributors that go out and hand sell wine to restaurants and whatnot is is, is getting smaller and smaller and the companies the mid-tier distributors are getting bought up by big distributors and you know, and that, that's, that's its own thing and not entirely negative. We're with some very large distributors across the country and some of them do a very good job for us and some of them don't. Um, and the same ones do a good job in some markets and terrible job in another market. So um, yeah, I, I think our, our destiny here as small producers in the Willamette Valley is all about developing our own customer base that want something that you can't buy in in every you know Walmart in this country you know you make a hundred cases of something it's just four barrels of wine you know and there's only so many bottles and and people find a lot of value in that and and I think that's great and obviously the other thing is, is is trying to get the the new generation interested in where things come from you know which I think is, is very, very doable. I think They're a pretty smart generation, so at least I hope they are. <laughs> and they seem pretty interested in sort of food sourcing and buying local. I, I think thing. so, yeah. It's just a matter of getting them to, you know, think about wh- where their wine comes from, because oftentimes that's the disconnect. It's like, oh, we buy local organic, local organic, and then you buy the co-op wine out of the middle of Spain for $4.99 a bottle and God knows what they sprayed on that you know it's like they may have like har- accidentally harvested a, a bull you know and got it in the tank and God knows what else went in there so you know it's, it's, there is a little bit of a disconnect there so and I, I think that will sort itself out so What advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry? to get into it right now Mm -hmm. oh god um go to music school (laughs) no Uh, it's actually it's growing so so much right now that there's probably a lot of opportunity um it's my best advice for somebody who wants to get into it, it i guess it's all about what are you after you know But if you want to make great wines, and you want to be a part of making great wine, um, get a dog first, it keeps you calm. (laughs) Um, Learn about the great wines of the world. Learn about Burgundy, learn about Barbaresco, learn about Sancerre, um, learn about where things came from. It's just like playing music. If, If you want to play free jazz, you better know how to play swing and bebop. You know, you got to know this stuff. It's very important before you start playing all 12 notes, you know. Get two dogs. (laughs) So I I would say learn about what great wine is, and also learn about the great wines in in the region you're going to work in. So if if you want to work in the Willamette Valley, you should know, you know, Cameron, you should know... Uh, Christum, you should know Jay Christopher, you should know Brooks, you should know, I mean, I could go on and on, Patricia Green, you you know, there's a lot of people. Adelsheim, there's a lot of great wines being made here. So, the most important thing is to know what you're trying to produce. And the least important thing would be the science. You can learn that. I mean, that's something you can pick up on the job, or you can take extension courses. The hardest part is learning what great wine tastes like that's commitment. Got to drink a lot of wine. (laughs) Not too much of a sacrifice then, at least. No. No. I enjoyed my training, (laughs) and I continue to train. (laughs) So that's all the
1: questions I have for you. Uh, Is there anything else in this part of the interview that you'd like to mention, anything I should have asked that I didn't? No, not really. Okay. That was pretty thorough. All right. Well, thank you very much. We really appreciate it.